beautiful day. And um, that would be every day. So this is the day the Lord has made, and, and we will be rejoicing in it. Um, we, we're running a couple minutes late getting started, and our, uh, our preacher today wanted to take the Lord's Supper. And he said, you haven't examined me for the Lord's Supper. So I said, well, I mean, part of our examination is uh, give us your profession of faith. And I said, well, you've given us at least four hours of your profession of faith. <laughs> but we also want people to tell us how they understand what they understand is happening at the Lord's Supper and uh, want to know what they, what they in their heart will answer when Ron Graham, who is here to serve the Lord's Supper, when he asks, him, asks us to examine ourselves. And we said, well, uh, what will your exam look like in your own heart for the Lord's Supper? And he, he gave us a good answer. Now, I'm not going to tell you. You have to come up with your own exam. <laughs> um, but we are, we are delighted to have Elijah Anderson with us this week, and he will be with us for three weeks. We don't know yet whether we, he will be a series or whether we will have a series, but my understanding is his sister told him, please preach a series. <laughs> so he's going to have a series which will be a passage in the Bible every week for three weeks, maybe more specifically. Anyway, we're happy to have Elijah back for a, a little bit. It's a treat for us to have that kind of thing. All of the events that are listed in the, uh, the bulletin are, are a ways down the road, so I'll encourage you to take a look at those yourself. Um, and I think without, I have some more things to say, but I'm not going to say them. You won't miss anything, so thank you. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a great blessing to be with you all once more. God calls us to worship using these words from Psalm chapter 9, Psalm 9, verse 1 and 2. David declares the following. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name. O Most High. Brothers and sisters, let us come before the Lord our God then, entering into his presence with praise, singing his praise from Psalm 9, selection A. Psalm 9A. Standing to sing.
Amen. Brothers and sisters, our help is in the name of the Lord God, maker of heavens and earth. So let's come before him in prayer. Father, we come before you this day recognizing that all we have comes from you. That all our springs are in you. Indeed, every blessing, every glory, every gift, if we have anything at all, it comes from your hand. We pray then this morning, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts for worship. That you would lift our hearts up. Take us away from the momentary issues of our lives and bring us once more, Lord, before your throne to worship you faithfully, earnestly, and trusting in everything that you will provide for us, that you will provide for our needs. We pray then, Lord, with thanks, praying that which you taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We turn now, brothers and sisters, to the giving of our tithes and offerings. We'll sing from Psalm 22a. Psalm 22a. My God, my God, to I cry.
please stand with me to come before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. All the ends of earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Father, you are the rightful king over all nations. You sovereignly rule over all the affairs of men. You place rulers in their places, and you take them down. You cause nations to prosper, and you cause them to fall. You have placed each of us in this time and place, and you are accomplishing your will in each of our lives. This is beyond our comprehension. We praise you for your infinite wisdom and power that you display in this way. We thank you especially for the loving kindness and the goodness that you show us in your providence toward your, us, your people, and your wonderful acts. To you, our glorious King, we owe all honor and praise and obedience. All nations and rulers owe you their allegiance and worship. But we forget. Rather than seeking you and resting in you, we fret over the actions of men. We look at the trouble in the world around us and we become discouraged and despondent. Father, forgive us for our weak faith, for taking our eyes off of you. Teach us to pray and to find hope and peace in you. Forgive us, Father, for not trusting you as we ought. Thank you for the mercy that you show us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness that you assure us that we may have in him. Father, we do live in troubling times. There are senseless wars caused by greed for wealth and power. There are wicked acts done toward those who are vulnerable and hurting. Your law has been rejected, and people turn away from how you have created them. As your word says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Father, do your work in us. Grant us wisdom and courage as we live in this place and time in which you have put us. Give us words of life for a world bent on death. We pray, pray particularly for those who are in government, that they will make just decisions that honor you. Give those who know you boldness to stand against the spirit of the day. May they pursue godly justice for the weak, even when it flies in the face of those of the so-called wisdom of the world. During these troubling times, work through your people to show compassion on those who are hurting in the world. Use us to show your love to those that need you, and may you be glorified in all these things. I pray now for this congregation. We are a diverse group. We come from a variety of backgrounds. We are in various stages of life. We each have our own struggles, whether that be in our work, marriage, parenting, loneliness, health, growing pains, or the many things that may trouble us. I pray that you will be working in each one of us, even through our troubles, to make us more into your image. Use us in each other's lives to bring comfort, encouragement, and even correction when it's called for. Grow in us an increasing love and unity for one another in all these things. Lord, we pray especially now for our brother Bill Walker, 
who is slow, slowly recovering from heart surgery. We thank you for the increased strength that he has, yet there are some milestones that he still needs to get through. Lord, I pray you'll bring him to full recovery, bring healing to him. I pray you'll comfort his family during this difficult time. Lord, guide us and teach us as a congregation as we go through various changes. We thank you for our new building. Please bless our efforts to complete the work required for us to be able to meet in it. Please guide our steps as we seek a new pastor for our congregation. We pray that you will now be preparing the man of your choosing for effective ministry here. Put your hand on our new deacons and elder-elect to help them to be effective in their service to the church. Please continue your work in the congregation that we may serve you well in love and in unity. We thank you for Mark and Lynn Chandler and their children, Lucas, Ian, and Natalie. We pray with them for the salvation of unsaved family members. May they come to know and love and serve you. We pray for Lynn as she anticipates back surgery in June. Please grant the doctor skill and success in that procedure and bring healing to her. Thank you for the improvements in Mark's work situation. We pray that you will bless him in that work and be glorified in it. We thank you for the work that you have begun in the church plant, Grace Reformed Church in Columbia, Missouri. We thank you for Pastor Gary McNamee who serves there. We pray that you will bless their various outreach efforts. May their open-air gospel preaching at the University of Missouri yield fruit, as well as their St. Patrick's Day and Earth Day outreach efforts. Lord, we thank you for their zeal for evangelism, and we pray that you will bear fruit through those efforts. And we pray that you will grow that congregation in number and in their faithfulness to you and their love for you and that you will establish that church in that place. I pray now for Elijah Anderson as he brings the word to us. Lord, I pray that you will give him your words as he preaches and help him faithfully relay what your word says. I pray you'll give us ears to hear and obey your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, please turn with me to Psalm 131a. Your bulletin says B, but we don't know that one very well, so we're going to sing A, 131a. As we sing this psalm, we come humbly and dependently before God. We are like a little child resting in his mother's arms. Let's sing 131a. <clears throat>
brothers and sisters, you may be seated. Please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, by, or with the Lord's favor, will be studying from John chapter 13 and 14 uh, during the three weeks in which I'm here. This morning from verse 1 through 17. This evening we'll study from verse 18 through 30 and continuing on in the following weeks. We'll also be reading from Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 27, simply to give us some context as to what's going on here. Brothers and sisters, in these final chapters, in John 13 through 17, Jesus is ultimately preparing his disciples for his death. We might say that these are the final will and testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, certainly he did not remain dead, and we can rejoice in that. But here, Jesus prepares the disciples for a life where he's not going to be physically with them uh, for much longer. He's going to be uh, first dying, then resurrecting, and finally ascending into heaven, and they won't be able to see him as they have before. He wants the disciples prepared for what's about to take place. So, brothers and sisters, as we study from these passages, these next few weeks, we ought to treat these passages with the greatest care. If we use the phrase that this is Christ, or the idea that this is Christ last will and testament, something that we should listen to with great care and with great caution. We'll start in John 13, verse 1 through 17, and then for context we'll read Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 27. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What am I doing? What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We read also from Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? One who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts this morning to your word, that you would teach us by it, that you would show us of the glorious love of Christ, of his service and sacrificing for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us this morning also to serve one another for the glory of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever had a moment in your lives where you received a piece of news that was so utterly unexpected, so blindsiding, it struck you completely by surprise? Have you ever been completely unprepared for a piece of news? I imagine that most of you have likely had this at one point or another in your lives when something came out of the blue and you just were not expecting it in the least. Let me give you a couple examples from my own life. When I first started college, uh, I took a philosophy class. I had a philosophy pre professor who was absolutely the funniest guy you could ever imagine. He would make jokes left and right all the time. And it came the day when on April 1st, April Fool's Day, uh, we all arrived into the class joking with each other, expecting that there was going to be some sort of prank. And our professor sat down and he said, I have cancer. And we didn't know how to take it. How are you supposed to receive news like that in a context where everybody's joking around. And the fact that he said it so blatantly and so openly, was it just struck us by surprise. The news was that much harder. One more example from this week. Uh, this week, my parents uh, contacted my family and told us that our dog was dying. And as of Saturday, our dog is now dead. And we didn't expect that, at least I didn't expect that. I had thought that our dog Lucy was very, very healthy. And so for me it was quite a surprise and it was all the more painful to not be able to see our dog again. To know that my dog that I dearly loved was dead. 
these sorts of news can be completely, uh, they just take us by surprise. And they're all the more painful because of it. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus' disciples were in this position of a sort. As we had just read a few moments ago in Luke chapter 22, Jesus' disciples came to the supper not expecting exactly what they were about to face. Sure, they had some sort of vague fears. They were afraid that something was about to happen, but they didn't know quite what was about to take place. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They were worried Jesus would be captured. But it's clear that as these men entered the upper room, they were not prepared for what was about to come. Instead, we see them jostling for position, looking for honor, fighting amongst each other to try and figure out who is the greatest disciple among them. Certainly fighting and saying, well, no, I'm better because this or that or the other reason. I deserve the place of honor. They weren't prepared for Jesus' death. Instead of awaiting their master's death, they thought nothing of him. Congregation, it's in this context that we arrive at our passage today. It's in a context where Jesus wishes to prepare the disciples for his death, and they're not prepared at all. That was in part what the Lord's Supper was. It was preparing them for his death. It was pointing them to the fact that he was about to die for them. Jesus, here in our passage this morning, instead of breaking the news to them outright, he does something very strange. At the very outset of this supper, as he prepares for the cross, he doesn't make some grand statement. He doesn't proclaim to the world what's about to take place at the very beginning. No, he, he steps down from the position of honor. And he goes from disciple to disciple, washing their feet. And this image that he gives them of washing their feet is for a very specific purpose. He wants to prepare them by this image for his death. And to teach them as they look forward to the future to serve one another. We'll see this congregation in three ways this morning. First, by seeing that Jesus' service was informed. Second, that his service was necessary. And third, that his service was exemplary. We begin in verse 1 through 5 by seeing that Jesus' service was informed. Jesus' service was informed. John begins the passage before us this morning by setting the scene for us. Just as someone in a play might lay out the scene and and tell us what's going on in the play, so too John takes a moment to set the scene, to give us the characters, to show us what's going on and what's taking place. And going into this passage, the first thing that John wishes to make very clear for us is that Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Some people paint Jesus' death as a horrible tragedy, something that was completely unexpected, something that Jesus, well, he was an unwitting victim 
They seem to believe that Jesus was well, just victim of political forces beyond his control, beyond his knowledge, that Jesus was just a guy at the wrong time, in the wrong place. And if he had been anywhere else, well, he wouldn't have died. The first three verses of this chapter describe Christ very differently. Far from being some man who stumbles into his death, Jesus was well aware of what was approaching. In fact, if we were to examine the Last Supper here in the book of John, John chapter 13 through 17, just about the whole of that passage has to do not with Jesus coming to grips with his own death, but rather with preparing his disciples for what's to come. It isn't until about John chapter 17 that we see Jesus prepare himself. Everything beforehand is Jesus showing his disciples, teaching his disciples, preparing his disciples. Look at our passage and you'll see that Jesus was well aware of what was about to take place. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus knew his death approached. It says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Throughout the book of John, Jesus is fully conscious of the fact that his death is approaching. Take a few examples. John chapter 2. Very early on in the book of John, the wedding at Cana. What does John do? Excuse me, what does Jesus do? His mother asks him to help out with the wine at the feast. And he declares, woman, what is it to you? My time has not yet come. Likewise, John chapter 7, John tells us they sought to take Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But now, John tells us that his hour had finally come. Jesus was aware of it, expected it, waited for it, rejoiced in it. During Jesus' entire ministry, he had been waiting for this moment, and John says Jesus knew His hour had come. Beyond this, Jesus knew his betrayal approached. Verse 2 says this. It says to us, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We'll see this more in detail this evening, Lord willing, but it's clear that Jesus was perfectly aware of the fact that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that there was one in his, in his company, in their midst, that was going to lead him in, into uh, captivity, into his death. Jesus knew he only had a few hours before he would be captured by the authorities, before he would face judgment and scorn, before he would ultimately face death. And verse 3 finally says that Jesus knew his hour to return to the Father approached. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. The point that John is making here is to remind us, not only was Jesus divine, he was fully aware of the fact 
He did not walk into this final supper with his disciples uh, somehow ignorant of what was to take place, ignorant of who he was. So the picture before us this morning is this. Jesus walks into the upper room with full knowledge of everything he needs to know. Full knowledge that he is king of all creation. Knowing that his death is imminent. And he's greeted by a a group of disciples who have no clue what's to take place. Even though he'd warned them and done his best to prepare them, now here they're squabbling over position. Squabbling over who's to take the most honorable place at dinner. Jesus Christ, the King of creation, listening to disciples, arguing over who's the best. What would you expect in a moment like this? When the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, how would you expect Jesus to react in a situation? For a moment, put yourselves in his shoes. How would you react? If you knew these things and you saw the disciples bickering in this way, wouldn't you expect him to tell the disciples to sit down and shut up? Wouldn't you expect him to to focus the spotlight on himself and say, pity me? If you were in in his place, wouldn't you expect this? I can imagine if I were in his place, I probably would say, well, You should be sad for me. I'm about to die. But he doesn't do this. In this moment when he stands at the edge of unimaginable suffering, in this moment when he's about to lay down his life for the disciples, wouldn't you expect him to shake his disciples awake, to rebuke them and say, look around you. Look what's about to take place. That's not what he does in the first place. He doesn't rebuke them angrily. Jesus says, verse 1, loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. So when Jesus is faced with these petty squabbles, he does something surprising, something remarkable, as verse 4 and 5 tell us. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Congregation, in Jesus' time, foot washing was not a high and honorable thing to do. As I'm sure you can imagine, even today, we consider feet to be somewhat gross. Yet in this day, of course, when people walked around everywhere, their feet got dusty. Foot washing was a disgusting matter. It was a task given only to servants and to slaves. It would have been considered very shameful for a master of the house to stoop down to wash someone's feet. So when Jesus does this, the action clearly takes the disciples off guard. They don't expect to see their Lord in the position of a servant. Look at the way he's described. He rises from the table, from the position of honor, because there was a position of honor in those days, and he takes off his garments, strips himself of any dignity that he might have, removing every outward sign of glory, 
Some commentators believe that he would have stripped down to what today we would consider our underwear, his undergarments. And he wraps a towel around himself. He goes from disciple to disciple. And at each disciple, he stops, pours out water in a wash basin, cleans the feet of each man there, drying them with the towel wrapped around him. Can you imagine the stunned silence that would have followed as he went around? The disciples arguing over pride of place, their master and Lord at their feet, doing the work of a servant. And all of this Jesus did, not in spite of, but because of the knowledge that he had of his death and of his glory and of his power knowing his coming death. Brothers and sisters, we may be tempted to think little of the disciples here, but the fact of the matter is that we are often in their place. We seek our own honor and glory. We look for recognition from others. We want others to look to us as examples. We brag to others about our own accomplishments and achievements. We hope that others see us in a good light. And not only that, but when we're given a position of power or honor, it's very rare to find someone who then stoops down. It's our natural impulse to demand that others treat us according to our station in life. To say, well, I have this position. People need to respect me. I don't get any respect around here. We hope that others honor us. But Christ knew who he was. He knew his authority. He knew what was coming, and yet he laid aside his dignity to serve the disciples. How often do we serve our glory instead of Christ's? Yet Christ here sets aside his visible glory to serve his own. Brothers and sisters, this is in part, what the Lord's Supper proclaims to us. In fact, it's at the heart of what the Lord's Supper proclaims to us. Christ for us. That Christ served us. And that's, in fact, what we see much more clearly in verse 6 through 11. And the second point, that Jesus' service was necessary. Jesus' service was necessary. Look at verse 6 through 11 with me. It says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. All the other disciples allowed Jesus to wash their feet in silence. Or at least there's no recorded answer from any of the other disciples. But when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter cannot stay silent. As the zealous man he is, he must speak. He will not allow himself to be washed by his master. He's always been the first and the loudest, the most zealous for Jesus. He's always been the first to proclaim Jesus' power and glory. So it doesn't sit right with him that Jesus would lay aside his glory 
and serve he has if not the humility then at least the shame to recognize that his lord should not have to take the place of a servant notice here peter doesn't offer to serve in jesus place he doesn't offer to take the wash basin and wash the rest of the disciples no he just doesn't want jesus to wash his feet someone else should do it but not my master is peter's thought But here it becomes obvious that Jesus has more in mind than a simple rebuke of his disciples' arrogance. His washing their feet is not simply to rebuke their pride. He responds with, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. When he says you'll know after this, he's not talking about the foot washing. Jesus is talking of his coming death and resurrection. He's saying, Peter, you don't understand why I'm washing your feet now, but when you have seen what is about to take place in my death, then you'll know why I did this. If we examine Jesus' actions in washing the feet, the deeper meaning becomes clear. Jesus was not only rebuking their pride, he was presenting them with an image of what he was about to do. Take a look again at the actions of Jesus in this passage. And what do we see? He rose up from his seat of honor. He laid aside every trace and every ounce of dignity visible. He took up the image and the job of a servant. He washed their filth away, leaving them clean. He's presenting an image of the cross explaining to them that he left behind his glory to die for their sakes in their service. That's why when Peter keeps refusing to be washed, Jesus tells him, if I do not wash you, you will have no part with me. Because if we are not washed by Jesus' blood, then we can have no part with Christ. If we are not washed by the work of Christ in our service, then we cannot rightly call ourselves Christians. If we are not washed by the blood of Christ, we cannot claim to be clean. Brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is that unregenerate man at his core often believes, well, does believe, that he doesn't need the blood of Christ. Perhaps he believes that he's clean. Perhaps he believes maybe like Peter here, that he can wash himself. Perhaps he believes that someone else, like the saints or the Virgin Mary or someone else will cleanse them. Jesus here declares that there is no one else. It is only by the work of Christ that we can partake in his body. It is only by the work of Christ that we can belong to Him. It is only by the work of Christ that we can be united to Him. It's only in Christ that there is cleansing, washing, forgiveness of sins. So congregation, look to Christ. Are you covered in dust? The dust of pride, the grime and the filth of lust, of hatred, of idolatry and self-seeking, come to Christ. Only He can wash you. That is what we proclaim. 
when we take of the Lord's Supper. Jesus and his disciples were at this moment at the Lord's Supper. And he is proclaiming to you, unless you are washed, you will have no part of me. Brothers and sisters, if you take from the Lord's Supper this morning, if you eat of his flesh and if you drink of his blood, you are proclaiming the same thing that Christ proclaims here. If you are not washed, you can have no part of him. It is only by his blood and his flesh that we are saved. Not the physical bread, not the physical wine, it is only by faith in Christ and in His death in service for you that there is to be found salvation. Do you understand this, brothers and sisters? Do you recognize that when you take from the Lord's Supper, that's what you're proclaiming? That just as Christ went to the cross in service, just as He washed the disciples' feet, when we take from the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming we are part of Him. Because he died for us. Brothers and sisters, if you have been cleansed by him, if you've been washed by him, there is yet one more thing to glean from this passage, and we see this in verse 12 through 17. Jesus' service was exemplary. Jesus' service was exemplary. And I, I don't want you to, to understand or, or take this part of the passage if you do not understand the first part, that Jesus died for us. But if indeed He did die for you, if you trust in Him, if you have been washed by Him, then also His death was to be an example for you. Look at verse 12 through 17 with me. He says, When He had washed their feet and put on His outer garments, resumed His place, He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We won't spend too long in this portion. But in this final few verses of the text, Jesus sits down once more and he gives them a simple command. If you have been washed of your sin, you should serve others. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For those of us who have Christ as our Master and Lord, for those of us who are his disciples, we're commanded to live as a result of his work in such a way as to serve like Jesus did. Not in dying to save others. Certainly we can't do that. But in serving, in caring for others. Paul puts it almost identically in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, 
and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If you have seen this work of Christ in washing your sins, brothers and sisters, then let your life be a life of service as well. Not in dying for others, although one day you may have to, but first in serving others. What does this service look like? I think we could pull many, many applications from this text. And today I want to focus on four. First, brothers and sisters, if we have been cleaned, washed by Christ, then let our service be a service focused on the church. In this passage, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And in verse 14, he says that we should wash one another's feet. It's not a bad thing to serve others outside of the church. Scripture also declares this. But Jesus here focuses in on the disciples. He says, if you've been washed, wash one another's feet. If you have seen the service of Christ, serve one another in the church. To care for one another. To sacrifice for one another. Second, if Christ has indeed washed us, our service should be a service which disregards deserving. Often we think of serving and of helping people, and we excuse ourselves from the service because we convince ourselves that they don't deserve it. We say, well, this person was unkind to me. That person was rude to me. The other person uh, slandered me, lied about me. The other person hates me. We, we can come up with all sorts of reasons as to why this or that or the other person in the church does not deserve our service. We feel justified in not serving people because we say they don't deserve it. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, they weren't in the right frame of mind either. More than that, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Somebody in the visible church who very clearly, when all was said and done, was not a believer. He served washing the feet of somebody who was to betray him. Knowing this betrayal was about to take place. More than that, brothers and sisters, Christ died for you. You didn't deserve Christ's service for you. So service is that which disregards deserving. In the third place, service is that which disregards dignity. When Jesus served his disciples, he set aside his dignity to care for them. If we're being honest, it can be a struggle for us to do this. It can be very easy to serve in places where we maintain our dignity, where we look to be the good guy in the situation, and, and we're rather uh, respectable in our service. Far too often we don't like to get our hands dirty when it comes to serving others. So when we think about serving others, it often comes down to giving extra money to the missions fund, to uh, giving money to the homeless shelter, not saying that these things are bad. But they're not what Jesus is primarily talking about in this passage. Service means being willing to do whatever it takes to help the person in need. 
This may mean something simple, but it may also mean that which is far less clinical, cleaning up after the sick, being a shoulder to cry on when someone's at their worst moments, taking care of those who certainly don't deserve it and who appear to not even care about the gospel. Service is that which disregards dignity. Finally, service in Christ's name is service that is active. Jesus closes the passage before us this morning with these words. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not enough to know that we should serve others, to lay back, to recognize on an intellectual level that Christ has served us and we should in return. Jesus wants a life of action, that we serve those who are in the church that we serve because Christ served us. As we then go to the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters, let us be reminded Christ's death for us was an act of service. It was a demonstration of humility that the King of glory would shed His blood our sakes. When we take the Lord's Supper then, brothers and sisters, and in our service and day to day, let us be reminded it was Christ who died for us. Christ who served us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we would be reminded this morning and every day of the service of Christ, that He set aside His dignity, His glory, His honor for our sakes, that He placed Himself in the place of a servant. We pray, Lord, that this truth would be a truth which governs our lives, a truth which at every moment reminds us First, of the love of Christ for us. And second, reminds us to serve others because of what Christ has done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we turn now to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning, which will be administered by Reverend Graham. from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed, took giving thanks. I take this bread, giving thanks, following the Lord's command and example. Take this bread, giving thanks as he did. That's Lord on that night, in observance of the ancient Passover ceremony, on the eve of your own death, you took bread and blessed it reminding your disciples and us that this represents your body. This is your body, which is broken for us. We thank you for your great love, for the fact that you've loved us to the very end as you did your disciples, and you will love us to the very end of our lives and bring us safely into your eternal kingdom. We rejoice in the hope of glory accomplished and promised
by your death of Calvary, in your agony when you cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When you breathed your last and gave up your spirit. Thank you for this sacramental symbol, which reminds us of all of that, and for these words this morning that remind us that we are to, to do what you have done for us, to serve. Not to seek to be the greatest, but to serve. For you were one among us as a servant. Bless this, and we pray that you would consecrate this setting apart from a common to a sacramental use, this, this bread that we shall eat this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After the Lord Jesus had blessed the bread, he broke it, a sacramental act significant of his suffering and death upon the cross. Following his example, I break this bread and give it to you, his disciples, saying, as he said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. ...to a church filled with immature believers said, I have to give you milk and not the solid food. You're behaving like children, fighting and quarreling. There's strife and envy and division among you. You're not discerning the body of Christ. Take to heart these words of warning. If the session has censured you and asked you not to partake, it's because they, like Christ, love you and seek the salvation of your soul. In this particular instance in the Corinthian church, Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6 about us individually and us corporately as the temple of God in which he delights to dwell. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, I couldn't speak to you as, spirit, as to spiritual men, but as to worldly for you are still worldly since there is envy, strife, and divisions among you. Are you not worldly and behaving as mere men? For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not worldly? Verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles or spoils or ruins the temple of God, God will ruin him. For the temple of God is holy, and you are his temple. We assemble here today in the presence of myriads of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect in joyful assembly. Do not be deceived by the evil one who would enter your heart and stir up strife and envy and division. Discern the body. Don't do anything to harm or destroy this temple with profound hearts of gratitude. Solemnly remembering that Jesus set an example for us to follow in his footsteps, let us partake. The Gospels record that Jesus also prayed before giving the cup. And so following his example, I take this cup, praying as he did. Let's unite our hearts in prayer.
Lord Jesus, by your precious life, your precious blood shed at Calvary, poured out for us in that ultimate sacrifice of the Passover, the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We give you thanks that this is this blood of the new covenant is shed for many for the remission of sins. We claim this promise for ourselves. We ask that you would, again, bless as much as we shall use this morning. Consecrate this cup. Set it apart from a common to a sacramental use and by your Spirit, work in us a greater zeal for holiness and godliness, a greater love for you, that we might love you to the very end, even laying down our lives that called upon by you in service to you and your people in the proclamation of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After the same manner also, when he took, when he, he took the cup when he had sucked, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll conclude our service by singing together from Psalm 66b. Psalm 66b. Please stand to sing and remain standing for the benediction.
brothers and sisters in Christ, rejoice in what, what the Lord has done for you. It gladdens my heart to hear you sing, you who fear God, coming and telling what God has done for your soul. And may when you assemble, when you gather together, may there be no divisions but love and service in Christ by the grace of God. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.